Hey, Vince, it's, it's really great to see you. You know, we've all been really praying about, you know, the new recording project, and, you know, I figured you probably just needed a little extra cash. Oh, thank you guys so much. You guys are the best. I love y'all. Yeah, I've really been looking forward to this Life Group Bible study. Before we start, I have to tell you guys this joke I heard the other day. So there was a brunette, a redhead, and a blonde all going to the desert. The brunette said, I'll take some water so I don't get dehydrated. The redhead said, I'll take some sunscreen so we don't get sunburned. The blonde said, wait till you get this. The blonde said, I'll take a car door. So when it gets hot, I'll just roll down the window. Ha! <laughs> That's good. You're, a, like you're that. a real comedian. You are a real comedian. Let me tell you. You know, I have to say, that is just as funny as a heart attack. <laughs> hey, guys, come on. Um, Let's edify. Scripture says that we're to edify. I mean, what this, this group is to be, this group is to be about giving and, and not taking, uh, about building each other up. And, and you all need to build each other up. Oh, right. Like, we all want to be more like you. <sighs> well, okay. Um, how are y'all doing in your walk with the Lord? Because we said, we agreed that we were going to hold each other accountable to, to always walk, right? To always walk in his grace. Well, that's right, because... Oh, uh, oh, okay, oh, right. all right, okay. Some more. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> well, this week, I had the most amazing week because I, me, I fasted, and it's been a life-changing experience. Well, you know what scripture says about fasting? The fast that God desires is to loose the bonds of wickedness. It's not just about not eating. It's about getting in touch with your brokenness. Mm. Yeah, wow. that's, that's right. And in, in fact, this week, I got, I got so in, in touch with my sin that I, I, I just sat there and I wept for, for an hour, for an hour, Vince. I just wept over Amazing. my sin. Wow. Well, I was so broken, I wept for two hours. <laughs> and then I wrote a song about it. Uh. <laughs> you are so good at this, this brokenness thing. Like, like, you're really, really, really broken. Very broken. Well, maybe we should just pray, because it's really, it's not about us. Okay, let's, let's pray, I'll, I'll close. Lord, thank you for your great love, for you are the great provider and you really do provide for those you love. Like, thank you, Lord God, for my house and my car and thank you, Lord God, for providing finances for, for me because you love me. And, and Lord God, thank you so much that our righteousness doesn't depend on an old covenant Works of the law, like fasting, doesn't depend on, on that. And Lord God, I just want to thank you for teaching me patience through my wife. Thank you for making me more like yourself because of her, naked, beaten, nailed to a piece of wood. God, thank you so much for my small group. <laughs> I get so much. Out, out of it. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Amen.
Luke chapter 18, verse 9. Uh, this is the parable that immediately follows the parable that we preached on last week, the parable of uh, the widow and the unjust judge. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, dikaios. Remember, we talked about that last week. And, and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray. N now, we don't easily see how this parable relates to the last parable, but they're both about prayer before a judge. In the temple, there was an inner sanctuary, and in the sanctuary was the Ark of the Covenant. And in the Ark of the Covenant was the law written on tables of stone. Covering the Ark was the kaporet, in, in Hebrew translated mercy seat, uh, or, or translated mercy seat from the Hebrew into English. On the kaporet, the, the high priest sprinkled the blood of the lamb on Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. Kippur, atonement, was made on the kaporet for 1,500 years, and no one really knew what it meant. In, in Greek, uh, the word in, in Greek for, for kaporet, or mercy seat, is hilaskerion. The hilaskerion was, the hilaskerion was viewed as the throne of God on earth, and, and that means that the mercy seat is also the judgment seat, the hilaskerion covering the ark, containing the law in the temple. So, verse 10, two men went up into the temple to pray. Now, this would have been about the time of the morning sacrifice or the afternoon sacrifice around 3 o'clock. Each day, the priest would sacrifice two lambs in the temple, one in the morning, one in the evening, and the smell of roast lamb and incense would waft through the air over the worshipers. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee. The word Pharisee likely comes from another Hebrew word that means separate. So the Pharisees were the separated ones. They believed that their religious practice separated them from other people. It was a popular music um, or movement, Phariseeism, in, in Jesus' day. Uh, so they were like the Bible study leaders, the promise keepers, the campus crusaders, the popular pastors of their day. They kind of remind me of me. And so look around. Just, just look around at the people in here. Look at them. I'm the pastor. Do what I say. Some of them match that description, and you've admired them. On the other hand, there was a tax collector. Tax collectors had cut a deal with the Roman oppressors to collect taxes from their countrymen. It was expected of them to make a profit through extortion and betrayal. And so look around. Go ahead, look around. But we have some people that match that description in here. Because, see, they dress just like everyone else. They dress just like uh, everybody else in the temple. But maybe you know one. I mean, I don't, I don't know that I'm not pointing anybody out, but maybe you know one. I mean, maybe someone in this room has wronged you. It was just wrong. You know it was just wrong. And now they're sitting here this morning acting like they have faith, but you know they have not been faithful. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, he prayed this way, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterer, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of everything that I have. 
all I got. But the tax collector, saying far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, says Jesus, this man went down to his house justified. Dikai a'o. He went down to his house justified rather than the other. Justified, and he made no promises. He made no covenant. He made no resolution. That we no resolutions that we read of. The tax collector received ekdikasis, righteousness, justification, the vengeance of God, and the Pharisee did not. And he must have considered that rather unjust. Verse 14, Jesus says, I tell you, this tax collector went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now that statement is so absurd that if you chew on it for just two or three seconds, your mind will immediately start making qualifications. And yet Jesus said other crazy stuff like this. Whoever, not some, but whoever, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So the last, not some last, but the last will be first. And the first last. Everyone, not some, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And the one who humbles himself will be exalted. I mean, this is seriously so radical that honestly, I do not know of any person walking the face of this earth that really lives or acts like they believe what Jesus just said. The situation of all humanity is exactly like this. Hey, look, we're almost in Colorado. What do you say we change seats? I've been driving for nine straight hours. I don't have the energy to start a new state. Hey, Harry, I got some beef jerk. Some people just weren't cut out for life on the road. mountains to be a little rockier than this. I was thinking the same thing. That John Denver's full of shit. Hey, look. <laughs> that John Denver's full of poop. I think that's why he said poop. 
Harry and Lloyd are trying to get to Aspen, if you remember, where the beer flows like wine, as Harry puts it. And they take the right road going the wrong direction. We may follow the way and do all the works of the law, but all for the wrong reason. So we judge God and we judge the way and we say things like that. That scripture is full of spoop. I've worked my butt off. I've worked my butt off following the precepts laid down in Scripture. I've worked my butt off uh, trying to elevate myself, and it's like I just keep getting humiliated over and over and over and over again. What part of pick up your cross and come follow do we not understand? We like all of it. So why do you go to work? Why do you do good deeds? Why are you kind to your neighbor? Is it, is it because you want to be a better person? Because you want to elevate yourself? Why do you come to church? Why do you trust Jesus? Do you trust Jesus to get to heaven? To elevate yourself all the way to heaven? Why do you want to be humble? <laughs> so you can be a better person? You want to be humble so you can be proud? How do you humble your proud self with, with yourself? Well, let's wrestle the, the word a little bit. Verse 9, he, he told them this parable uh, to, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, that they justified themselves and then treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed this way, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. He thanks God that he's not like other men. Is he like other men? Is he, is he better than other men? Is he special? You know, I went to elementary school in the 1960s, and everybody at school and in society seemed to be all fixated on the survival of the fittest. People thought that the survival of the fittest explained life. Darwin did not say the survival of the fittest explains life. In fact, the survival of the fittest is a tautology. Uh, the fittest are defined as those that survive, and those that survive are defined as the fittest. doesn't really tell you anything. But at South Elementary School, we believe competition was life. So life was all about exalting yourself, and you exalted yourself by beating your neighbor. And so in all of our classes, the teacher seemed to grade on a curve. And when she graded the test, she'd hand them back in front of the whole class, stating your grade in front of everybody else. I usually did pretty well. And her approval felt like a drug. In gym class, we always pick teams. And a lot of times, I always picked last. I hated PE, just hated it. We probably couldn't articulate the idea that life advanced through violent competition, but man, we learned the lesson. I still remember standing in the dust on the playground at South Elementary School, watching a group of boys kick and beat my friends Matt and Duncan, who used to pretend to be superheroes at lunch. And as they lay there in the dust, 
weeping, part of me felt exhilarated. That maybe I, maybe, maybe I was now not the last and the least, but I was one of the boys. We were united. Because we were not like Matt and Duncan. Sociologists call that scapegoating. Some anthropologists say that's responsible for this thing we call society and for religion. In other words, the magic pill that makes people unite and feel alike is finding a person or a group that they judge as different with which, on which, they can lay blame, the scapegoat. So to unite America, it really helps have a Soviet Union. Or an ISIS, an Islamic State of Iraq and, and Syria, to unite a denomination. Well, you need the liberals, if you're a conservative denomination. Or you need the conservatives, if you're a liberal. To unite all Christians, wouldn't you need non-Christians? And to stay united, wouldn't you always need non-Christians, preferably languishing in outer darkness without end or being tormented by fire with no help or no hope for, for redemption. I mean, is that what it means to be a Christian, to be able to say we are not like those people? Those people that freely choose unrighteousness. And so we'll be endlessly tormented as living horrors. Those people that God chose to be endless horrors, forever tormented, uh, maybe perhaps. Maybe he chose it, they chose it, but whatever. Uh, we are blessed. And they are cursed. I mean, dang, if you, really, if you think about it, I cannot think of two groups of people that would be more not like each other. We're united with our group by fear when we scapegoat, and so we're not really united at all because we're only united for the sake of exalting the self. I watched Matt and Duncan weep in the dust on the playground, and something in me took pleasure. But even as it took pleasure, as I took pleasure, as whatever it was that took pleasure, the pleasure died. Love died. You know, something in me still takes pleasure in watching a fellow pastor fail. For something in me whispers, Peter, look, you're better than him. You're not like him. You have just been exalted. It hits me like a drug. Then it fills me with despair. For then I am even more alone and it feels like hell. Almost as if the measure I give is the measure I get. Verse 11. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed this way, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Thank you that I'm not an extortioner. The Greek word is harpax. harpax. It means rapacious. 
it means someone that takes, someone that comes along and grasps something that is not rightfully theirs, like, you know, forbidden fruit or something, something like that. If you're biblical, you realize that all humanity is comprised of extortioners, that is, takers. As soon as you call your life, your life or my life, you confess having taken God's life for Christ Jesus is the life. He is the presence of the good and only God is good. We took knowledge of the good from the tree in the middle of the garden. It was forbidden fruit. And we took God's life we took God's life on the tree in the garden where Christ was crucified. We all take the life of the good to make ourselves good, and everything dies. In other words, we're all rapacious. The day you eat of it, you will die, said the Lord. Well, that could mean several things. For one, it could mean that you're dead. Sorry, it could mean that you're already, already dead. Scripture is clear, apart from Christ, we're all dead in our trespasses and sins. And check this out, dead people are humble people. Unless, of course, they don't know they're dead. Could mean that, that you're already dead. Uh, it could also mean that you will die. If you read my book, which you should, or you take the Bible literally, you realize that the sixth day is also this day, the day we're living in, the day that God makes Adam, which means humanity in his own image. This day, the sixth day, you must die. In order to get to the seventh day, where everyone lives. The day you eat of it, you will die. Could mean that death is, death is pretty humiliating, you know? And so check this out. You will all be humiliated. The day you eat of it, you will die. That could refer to the end of your physical life. Lastly, it could refer to a day that you don't really even remember. You were probably about two years old on this day, but after this day, everything changed. Deuteronomy chapter 139. It's one of the most fascinating verses in all of Scripture. Moses says this to the Israelites who had just received the law on the mountain but now refused to follow into the promised land. To them, God says this. You will not enter the promised land, but your little ones will. Who now I quote, today have no knowledge of good or evil. And we could spend like a year unpacking that verse, but scripture clearly teaches that little children have not yet tasted of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so, of course, they're not ashamed. I mean, they'll just run around the house butt naked all day without a thought. They, they don't care. They're free. Once when my son Coleman was about four, my dad was helping him get dressed, and my daughter Elizabeth, his older sister, walked into the room, and, and Coleman said, Elizabeth, don't look at my private parts. And Elizabeth said, well, Coleman, rather proudly, she said, I've seen him like a, a million times. And Coleman said, yeah, but that was before I knew I had him. <laughs> Do you know there was a time before you knew you had him? I remember the kids at that age, their adorability was like just off the charts. 
And they never tried to be good. They just were good, absolutely adorable, and they loved being adored by me, and I loved adoring them. And then this day came with each of them. And I don't know exactly when it was, but I remember the change with each of them. It was like they gained the knowledge of the good, and then they wondered if they were good, and then they tried to make themselves good, and that wasn't good. They became self-conscious. They began to justify themselves. They began to cover their shame and exalt themselves, and something died, and remembered wondering, who told you that you were naked? It's not an accident that the next thing Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke is, let the children come. You cannot enter the kingdom. You cannot enter the promised land unless you become like one of them. Well, anyway, God says the day you eat of it, you will die. We have all taken and all have become takers, rapacious. The Pharisee prays, thank you, Lord God, that I am not an extortioner. But he was an extortioner, a blind extortioner. And he prayed, thank you, Lord God, that I am not adikia, unrighteous. He had the law, he had memorized scripture, but he obviously didn't comprehend scripture. Psalm 14, 53, now Romans 3. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. The Pharisee is an extortioner. He's unrighteous, and he's an adulterer. Moikos, that means faithless to God and his covenant. Faithless like Jerusalem. God's whoring bride who murdered her groom because she thought he was unjust. The truth is that the Pharisee is just like all other men, takers, unrighteous, faithless, now enslaved to the desire to exalt the self by taking the good and thereby killing the life. The Pharisee is dead and his trespasses and sins just like all other men, not knowing, <laughs> dead, not knowing he's dead and yet trying to make himself resurrected and, and alive. And check this out. Anything faithful in him, anything righteous in him is love in him, right? Because love fulfills the law and God is love. God is love. So as soon as he uses love to exalt himself, he takes the life of love and, and, and thereby crucifies love. So, so the bad in him is his own doing, and the good in him is not his doing. The bad in you is death in you. That you that does the bad, that you needs to die. It needs the death of death. And the good in you is God in you, creating you. You don't make love. Love makes you, and love is free. So check this out. You don't possess free will, but free will can possess you. So look around. Just take a, yeah, I told you to do this before. Do it now. Just look around and listen. You are not better than anyone. Now, something inside you is going, okay, right, I got, I, I got your point, but Peter, you don't understand, I work really hard, and when other people quit, I keep going, and I've earned what I've gotten, I, I earned I, 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 shut up! 
And just look, look. You are not better than anyone. Offended? Maybe a little humiliated? You should be. You should be. I could quote a whole bunch of shocking psychological, sociological studies that reveal that consistently uh, people rank themselves, consistently rank themselves above average. The, the majority of people rank themselves above average. And that means that the majority of people are ridiculous. <laughs> or in denial or just really bad at math. And I'm not just saying you're not better than average. I'm saying no one in this room is better than, than average. And something in you is humiliated. And yet maybe something in you is a bit exhilarated. Ignatius of Loyola, the founder of the, of the Jesuits, said that one of the greatest blessings he'd ever received was the gift of the tax collector, the discovery that he was a sinner, just like everyone else. Thomas Merton wrote this, thank God, thank God, thank God that I am like other men, that I am only a man among others. It's a glorious destination to be a member of the human race. And so look around, look around. You're not better than anyone. And you're not worse than anyone. And you're different than all. Different than everyone. Not better or worse, but different. This is a picture of my dad's school. Along about 1933. My dad is the guy third from the, uh, from the left. You can recognize him by the same forehead. That's my, that's my dad. It hangs on my office door. Outside uh, my office at home. I, I, I just, I hated school. But I remember that my dad loved school. And I remember him saying to me on several occasions, Peter, my school was so different than your school. We never even heard of a curve in my school. It wasn't about competition. We weren't concerned with beating anybody. In fact, if you learned your lesson, well, you helped somebody else learn their lesson. That was the point, learn the lesson. It wasn't about beating anyone. It was about educating everyone. And this fact may explain that educational philosophy. Six of the 12 children in that school, in that picture, had the same father. <laughs> their, their last name was Hyatt. Half of them are my aunts and my uncles. You see, my grandfather didn't want them to beat each other. He wanted them to help each other, help each other learn the lesson, whether it be math or English or, or whatever. Ephesians 4, 4, there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. You know, I have four grown children. But they each still have a, a bedroom at home. And sometimes I'll go into their rooms when they're gone. And I'll just look at the posters and the trophies and, and uh, the letters and the photos on the wall. And just, I'll just ache. Uh, I mean, it scares me to, to do it almost. It, it, I want to tell them. And I, I don't know 
how to tell them. I, I want to tell them, I love you. I love you, I love you, I love you. I know you from before you took the fruit from the tree. I know you hide in shame. I know you want to justify yourself and can't justify yourself. I know you want to be good. But you just are good. You are worth the lifeblood of God. And there is nothing more valuable than that. So Jonathan Elizabeth Coleman, there is nothing more valuable than you. You know, each of my kids is so incredibly different. They each have unique challenges and troubles. Each one is better at some things than the others and worse at other things, but I would rather die than say that one is better than another. And you know what I just love now? I love it when they love each other. A couple years ago at Wellesley High School, teacher David McCullough gave a commencement speech titled, You Are Not Special. He ended with these words. Then you too will discover the great and curious truth of the human experience, that selflessness is the best thing you can do for yourself. The sweetest joys of life then come only with the recognition that you are not special. Because everyone is. In the words of Richard Ward, life is one big school of love. And I would add, there will be a test, not to see if you're better than your neighbor, but to help you learn the lesson. Love your neighbor. <laughs> That's the lesson. Ecclesiastes 3.17, Solomon writes this, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them. Why? That they may see. Not that, not that I may see. That they may see that they themselves are but beasts. You yourself are a butt beast. <laughs> Offended? Humiliated? I hope so, because then the sermon's starting to work. Anyway, verse 11. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, takers, unjust, unfaithful, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I got. But this tax collector, standing afar off, would not even lift his eyes to the heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, says Jesus, this man went down to his house justified, dikaio, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, I'm sure that's speaking of Judgment Day, and yet, Judgment Day is every day if you walk by faith in the presence of the Lord. And you know, there is something exalting about humility. And there is something humiliating about self-exaltation. Anthony DeMello, Jesuit priest, he, he, he used to say something like this. Recall the kind of feeling you have when someone praises you, when you're approved, applauded, accepted, and contrast that feeling with the kind of feeling that arises within you when you look at the sunset or the sunrise or when you read a good book or watch a great movie that you thoroughly enjoy. Or, or try this, recall the kind of feeling you have when you succeed. 
when you win a game or a bet or an argument. The feeling that you get when the teacher hands back the test in front of the class and announces your test score out loud and it's an A+. You know that feeling? Think of that feeling. And contrast it with the kind of feeling you get when you really enjoy the job you're doing. When you forget yourself riding the wave or hiking the trail up Long's Peak or painting the picture. And then he would say that first feeling comes from exalting yourself. It's called pride. If you're like me, it hits you like a drug and then it leaves you anxious, afraid, and in desperate need for more. The second feeling is humility. You're lost and then found. You're last and then first. You're humbled, but the whole world is exalted. Pride exalts the self, and humility exalts everything. Or sees everything as exalted. Pride is a lie embedded in your flesh that life is violent competition. It's a lie embedded in our stone cold hearts that we must justify ourselves, that we must use our knowledge of good to make ourselves good in the image of God. Pride makes you want to beat your neighbor rather than love your neighbor. Pride creates a fortress that is in fact a prison in which you suffer alone in outer darkness. Pride creates a false self. Pride is sin. Humility is the death of that self and freedom from sin. If you're humble, you cannot be offended because there's no pride to offend. You cannot be embarrassed because there's no self to embarrass. If you're humble, you enjoy laughing at yourself. And you don't mind criticism. You have an old false self. Well, that you're just happy to have exposed and therefore destroyed. And you have a true and eternal self that cannot be destroyed. But you have no self that needs to be defended. If you're humble, everything is grace. And you yourself are grace. So you are grateful to God and therefore have nothing to fear. Nothing to fear. However, I need to confess to you, just the thought of humility fills me with fear. I mean, I really wonder, I, I think it out and I wonder to myself, if I never, ever, ever tried to exalt myself because I wasn't afraid for myself, would myself ever do anything? Or would it just sit there until it dies? You see, humility feels like the death of my will. I mean, uh, if I'm really not afraid, well, I gotta tell you, it feels like the death of my will. And so I think my greatest fear is the fear of being afraid. I am really afraid not to be afraid because humility feels like the death of my will because my will is all about me. But maybe the death of my will is the birth of God's will. 
And God's will is free. God's will is love. Love is free will. I don't possess free will, but free will, well, it must be able to possess me. And love doesn't do nothing. Love does everything. Love bears all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. Love believes all things. All things. Fear exalts itself. Love exalts all things, including me. And love is humble. But how can I humble myself? That's, back to, that's the question, remember? How can I humble myself? Listen, if you condemn yourself, hate yourself, beat up on yourself, kill yourself, you're not humbling yourself. You're wallowing in yourself. You're trying to get rid of yourself with more self. And it's just more self. And what happens if you succeed? Well, you think you succeed and, and you become proud of yourself just more deeply trapped in yourself and then you become the, the, the blindest, dumbest, saddest Pharisee ever. Nowhere does the Bible actually say humble yourself, even if it's translated that way. James 4.10 literally reads, y'all be humbled in the presence of the Lord. First Peter 5, y'all get humbled by the strong hand of God. Get humbled. Mother Teresa wrote this, we learn humility through accepting humiliations cheerfully. So when they come your way, don't let the chance pass you by. If we really believe that the humble will be exalted, wouldn't it be grateful? I mean, even cheerful for our own humiliations? Eight years ago, I lay on my bed in absolute agony, having been slandered, defrocked, and kicked out of my church. I remember I cried out to God. I said, God, there are like 3,000 people disappointed in me angry at me. They even hate me. Now, I don't know if that's true, but that's how I felt. And so I prayed, God, there are 3,000 people that hate me, and I can't do one thing about it. And this is what I heard in my heart. Hey, Peter, that's pretty good therapy for a people pleaser, <laughs> isn't it? been eight years and every now and then for a second or two I accept my humiliation cheerfully and I see that God was saving me from me and he still has a lot more saving to do failure is humiliating and there is no greater failure than sin I hope you don't want to sin but I hope you're genuinely grateful that you have Sin is profoundly and wonderfully humiliating, and you've already sinned to plenty. You cannot um, do what you will to do. I mean, that's what sin shows you, doesn't it? You're divided, and you do, do it anyway, and like Paul says, and he can't do what he wills to do. In other words, uh, the acknowledgement of sin reveals to you that you can't do what you will to do, and what is it that you will to do? You will to create yourself in the image of God, and you can't. Seeing that kills you and create space for a new you, created by grace. Ek dikesis. 
Thus the vengeance of God, the righteousness of God, the justification of God. Well, the tax collector is confessing his sin, and the Pharisee refuses to see his sin. Number one, we learn humility through uh, accepting humiliations. And number two, we're utterly humiliated when we lose ourselves in something greater than ourselves. Standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon, watching the sun set behind clouds filled with lightning and rain, purple clouds filled with lightning and, and standing there looking at that sight is humiliating. But we usually call it humbling because we enjoy the humiliation. Watching your newborn son take his first breath is wonderfully humiliating as you realize, I didn't do that. I couldn't do that. I can't create life. God did that. The greatest story, a great story, a good movie is humiliating. Why? Because you lose yourself and then you find yourself in the story. Communion in the sacrament of the covenant of marriage is utterly humiliating. What am I saying? I'm saying great sex is humiliating. It's an ecstatic and wonderful way to be humiliated. You lose yourself and find yourself no longer two, but one, no longer private, but wonderfully public and not ashamed. And this refers to Christ and his bride. It refers to God and his bride, God and us. Well, we're all humbled when we lose ourselves in something greater than ourselves. The tax collector is beating his chest in the sanctuary as the priest slaughters a lamb in front of the Ark of the Covenant containing the law covered with mercy. Jesus said, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. Everyone. That's plural, right? Everyone. And, and don't all men exalt themselves and so proud of themselves, then proud of themselves, they cannot humble themselves. But Jesus said, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he didn't say everyone who humbles himself uh, will be exalted. This is what he said. The one who humbles himself will be exalted. So if there is one who can humble himself, that one has no pride and therefore no sin. And well, that, that, that one would not be like other men. All men exalt themselves and that one man would humble himself. He would travel the same road, but the exact opposite direction of all other men. Though he was in the form of God, writes Paul, he, singular, he did not exalt himself. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, made himself nothing. And being found in human form, he, that's the one, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, Philippians 2. He, Jesus, is the revelation of God. He's the decision of God. He's the will of God. He's the righteousness of God. He's the judgment, the judgment of God. So God Almighty is not proud. He's humble. And then Paul writes, have this mind among yourselves. How are we going to get that mind? Are we going to take it and claim it as, as our own so we could be proud of it? Because if we did, well, then it is not it. Unless the smell of incense and roast lamb fills the air, 
the tax collector beats his chest weeping. He doesn't make any promise. He doesn't make a covenant. He doesn't make any resolutions. He doesn't even humble himself. He is being humbled by the one that does. He is being humbled by the one man that is different from all other men, but makes himself like all other men in order to make all other men like himself. The Son of God. The tax collector beats his chest and takes a big breath of wind, a big breath of wind filled with the smell of incense and roast lamb, and then he cries out, God be merciful on me, a sinner. But he doesn't use the normal word for mercy. Uh, more literal translations read like this. God be propitious to me, a sinner. God be expiatory to me, a sinner. But no one really knows what propitiation or expiation really means. Just like no one really knows what halaskomai, the Greek verb, actually means. Halaskomai is only used in one other place in all of Scripture. Hebrews 2, verse 17. Listen, therefore Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and high priest, a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation that's the word halaskamai for the sins of the people on the day of atonement yom kippur the high priest would take two goats that could also be called lambs in hebrew say and he would confess the sin of the people over the one called the scapegoat. And then that lamb or goat was released into the wilderness. And he would sacrifice the other goat, taking the blood behind the veil and sprinkling the blood of that lamb or goat upon the throne, the judgment seat, the mercy seat, the hilaskerion from the same root as halaskomai. And in this way, he would make atonement. Echilastomai. Echilaskomai. The, the, the daily sacrifice in the temple was all about echilaskomai, making atonement. So the tax collector, he cries out to God, I need you to make atonement for me. I need you to forgive me. I need you, I need you to redeem me. I need you to justify me. I need you to do that thing that the high priest does behind the veil in the inner sanctuary. For me. And Jesus says, I tell you, he went home justified. Romans 3.22, Paul writes this. Listen closely. There's no distinction. That means all men are alike. You're not better or worse than anyone. There's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified. Did you catch that? All have sinned. And the same all are justified, which means made, made right. All made right by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, a hilaskerion, by his blood through faith. This was to show God's righteousness, that he might be just, and the justifier of the one who has the faith of Jesus. 1 John 2, 2, Jesus is the propitiation, atoning sacrifice, halasmos, for our sins, and not ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. <laughs> Do you see what that means? It means Jesus is the scapegoat. And you don't need another one. It means Jesus, who is first, has made himself last. So you could be first. 
We take his life on the cross, and that's sin. He gives his life on the cross, and that's grace. Life is not the survival of the fittest. Life is literally the sacrifice of the fittest. Life is what? Many cells, uh, many body parts, many people that all humble themselves, that all, the whole thing could be exalted. So Jesus is the lamb that was slain. Jesus is the high priest. Jesus is the judgment of God on the throne of God over all humanity, and God is humble. God is endless love, and love is life, and the life is in the blood. What does it mean? It means this. On the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take, eat, do it in remembrance of me. And he took the cup, saying, this cup is the covenant in my blood. The life is in the blood. This is the covenant in my blood. Well, what does, what, what does it, it, it mean? It, it, means, it, it means this. <laughs> it means Jesus, the Lord God in flesh, is saying something like this. Vince, Vince, I, I forgive you. I, I forgive you. My life, <laughs> endless. There's one thing wrong with this illustration. I do not have an infinitely deep bucket, but the grace of God, you see, is infinite. And that means that Vince can really not be insulted or offended. If someone takes his life, well, he can just forgive his life. Why? Because he has an endless life. Kim, I give you my righteousness. I give you my righteousness. I justify you with myself, with endless grace, so you can give it away. In heaven, everyone gives. No one stops giving, constantly humbling themselves and are constantly exalted. It's like a river of life from one bucket to the next bucket to the next bucket. Susan, Susan, you have been humbled, and now I exalt you. Peter, you're kind of full of yourself. <laughs> but now, but now let, me, let me ask you. Is the Pharisee unlike other men? No. He may be just in a different place on the road than other men may have a different shaped bucket than other men. Jesus said this, listen, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And that's great news. Is that bad news? No, that's great news because once you're humbled, you will be exalted. That's what scripture says. Uh, James and Peter say that. Then God will exalt. All will be humbled and all will be ex exalted. Do you remember how Paul taught that God would humble the Jews and make them, make them jealous? Do you remember that? Romans 11. He would have mercy on the Gentiles. And then he says, so in this way, all Israel will be saved. You see, if you've exalted yourself, God's mercy upon the humble will burn you. It will humiliate you. Because God hates you? No. 
because he is bound and determined to exalt you and make you in his own image. And, and now, I hope you see it, this river of grace, it flows between all the buckets, all the uniquely shaped earthen vessels, because in reality, they are blood vessels and they are all part of one body. So now, turn and look at the person next to you. Just look at him and listen. You are not better than them. And you are not worse than them. You are them. You are the body of Christ. And so come to the altar and let their river flow. In Jesus' name, amen. And so because he is infinite love, he said, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. Is that bad news? Hell no. That's the very best news. Everyone will be humbled. Everyone will die. We, we're all going to have to die. Everyone will be humbled. And then, and then James says this. We can't humble ourselves, but everybody be humbled. He said, get yourself humbled in the presence of God, and he will exalt you. That means we're all going to get humbled and we're all going to get exalted. And how do we get exalted? With the very life of him who humbled himself for all so that all might be exalted. And what happens after everybody is humbled and everybody exalted? Oh, a great party. Because what does a party need? A party needs people that love each other freely and people that aren't ashamed to put lampshades on top of their heads. That's what a great party needs. And you see, when you come to the presence of the Lord and you surrender to the presence of the Lord, which I have to do all the time, well then I think you can begin to party right now. In Jesus' name, believe the gospel and live. If you'd like prayer, members of our prayer team, they're down front here. They'd love to pray with you, but have a great week, and we'll see you.